listening to the Reformanda Initiative podcast, where we analyze and discuss Roman Catholic theology and practice from an evangelical perspective. My name is Clay Kennard. I'm the communications director for the Reformanda Initiative, and I'm sitting here in Rome with my brothers and colleagues, Reed Carr and Leonardo De Chirico, on a special day. Today is Reformation Day, October 31st, and here we are in the city center of Rome for our sixth episode. Uh, And this is the second part of an episode that we have titled Time Distinctions Meet Theology, the Blurring of Time Distinctions in Roman Catholic Theology. Um, my idea for a title was Back to the Future, Time, Dis- Time Distinctions Meets Theology, but that was quickly rejected by uh, my leadership here. So, <laughs> Reed, <laughs> what does this mean? Uh, we need to recap, I think, a little bit uh, what we introduced in episode five. What do we mean when we are talking about time distinctions meet theology, the blurring of time distinctions in Roman Catholic theology? Yeah, thanks, Clay. I'm not sure we rejected your title. Well, I saw eyes rolled. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense. I think that was a problem. (laughs) Other than being, you know, a catchy title. Yeah, well, we definitely want to make sense. So (laughs) I was just trying to be be relevant. Yeah, Yeah, thanks, Clay. Uh, Last week, we introduced this idea of the blurring of time distinctions in Roman Catholic theology. And we also introduced these Greek biblical adverbs, uh, hapax and melon, that are both related to time. Uh, but key to that discussion, and key, of course, to the one that we'll have today as well, is, is making sure that we are clear about these terms. Uh, of course, on its own, the blurring of time distinctions isn't really that clear at all, uh, nor are the adverbs hapax and melon, for sure. But they do, however, represent some basic ideas. When we talk about time distinctions, for example, we're just simply talking about the distinctions of past, present, and future. So very straightforward. Time uh, is actually very significant in theology, and that's kind of why we're <laughs> talking about it. Uh, God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to work out his plan of salvation in the context of time, and that is in the context of past, present, and future. Uh, so when we talk about the blurring of time distinctions, as we see in Catholicism, we are simply talking about how Catholicism has confused what God has done in time or what God has done in the past, uh, present, etc., uh, in fact, the biblical adverbs of hapax and melon affirm this as they relate to time and to events that took place in time. Hapax simply refers to events that are done and are completed and therefore are now in the past. Uh, and again, going over these definitions because I had got some feedback some, from some of our listeners and, and some weren't so clear on the ideas of hapax and melon. But hapax again, is just this idea uh, and communicates the idea that an event is done, it's completed, it's in the past. And melon, therefore, refers to events that are taking place now and continue to take place. So very straightforward. Uh, In Roman Catholicism, however, we see a confusing of those terms. That is, we see a confusing of what has happened or what is done and completed and now in the past with what is happening and continues to happen. And so the implications on the gospel are significant, and that's why we need to have a discussion about them because, like we've said in the past, it's all about the gospel here. Um, And last week we gave one example of this blurring and confusing of time in Catholicism. And that example was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that the earthly incarnation of Jesus Christ ended with his ascension into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. So his his incarnation is hapax. That is, it's done. It is completed. We will not see him again until he returns one day. Catholicism, however, confuses or distorts and blurs 
what Christ has done and says instead that he is still doing it. That is, the church teaches that Christ's incarnation is not finished, but is ongoing and continues through the church. So instead of being hapax, that is, once and for all, done, the incarnation in Catholicism is melon, continues on. The church, therefore, mistakenly claims for itself, and this is why it's so important and why we are discussing it, the church mistakenly claims for itself what Christ alone can claim. For example, Christ alone can save us. That is His prerogative and His prerogative alone. The church, however, believing itself to be the ongoing incarnation and presence of Christ on earth, claims that prerogative and that right as well. So we see that when time is blurred, it has devastating consequences uh, on the gospel. And from an evangelical perspective, our trust and our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, you know, revealed through God's word alone and is a gift of God's grace alone. Salvation does not come from and through the church, nor does it come from any human authority, nor is it through any sacrament or through any object. It's a matter of trust, really. You know, we trust in God and God alone, not in any man or institution. Uh, when time is blurred, however, then we are mistakenly asked to put our trust elsewhere. And Clay, in fact, you said it very well, very well last week that Christ's work being hapax once and for all gives us assurance. Yeah. And we can be assured of our salvation and what we have in Christ because Christ's incarnational work is finished. And therefore, the promises we receive, thanks to Christ's completed incarnation, such as promises concerning salvation, are guaranteed. We can be assured of them. If His incarnation is ongoing, however, as the Catholic Church teaches, we cannot be assured of anything. And instead, we are continuously dependent on what we receive from and through the church that has mistakenly assumed the role that is rightfully Christ's and Christ's alone. Instead of being assured of what Christ has accomplished, we instead find ourselves in an unending process of pursuing assurance ourselves, doing what we can do and what the church requires of us to obtain salvation, uh, which is never assured in this life. This is not what the Bible teaches, however, and, and demonstrates that Catholicism has misunderstood how God chose to carry out His plan of salvation in time. And the consequences are not surprisingly then devastating to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so today we'll, we're going to conclude this discussion on how Catholicism has blurred time distinctions, demonstrating how it does so uh, in both the Eucharist and also in Revelation. And I guess the best way to say it is Revelation with a, with a capital R. You know, capital R Revelation just meaning that it is revelation that comes from God Himself and therefore is infallible truth. And for an evangelical believer, this is limited to the Bible and to the Bible alone. You know, the Bible is certainly a half-pax event. That is, God's revelation is done, and we shouldn't expect any further revelation until Christ comes back and establishes His reign. Of course, in Roman Catholicism, revelation is malon. You know, it's ongoing. And this too has um, devastating effects on the gospel. But first, let's talk about the Eucharist and how Catholicism has, Catholicism has blurred time regarding the Eucharist. And really, to have a good discussion about this, we need to understand what the Eucharist is and why it's so important in Roman Catholic theology and also in practice. Uh, so let's answer those. Let's start with answering those two questions. What exactly is the Eucharist and why is it so important in Catholic theology and Catholic practice? Well, the Eucharist is the uh, sum and the climax of the uh, Catholic understanding of salvation, uh, the church, 
faith, grace, God, the present, the past, and the future. It sums up the whole of the Catholic gospel because it's the representation by the church of the sacrifice of Christ in order for salvation to be attained. And uh, in doing so, it captures the, uh, the heart of Catholicism and it, it conveys the, um, uh, the roots and the, the, uh, the center of, of what Catholicism stands for. And it, it uh, mistakenly confuses the times in that uh, in the Bible we clearly see that the sacrifice of Christ, the cross, is clearly an hapax event uh, which was done once and for all. Christ was offered once and for all. The cross was a, an hapax event. And... Uh, uh, it doesn't need to be repeated, represented, reoffered, because in itself it's something that has been done once and for all. That's the whole thrust of the letter to the Hebrews. That's the whole thrust of the uh, what Jesus himself said on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. There is nothing to be added, nothing to be represented, nothing to be reenacted, nothing that is in need of being somehow uh, re, um, redone or remade. Whereas the, the, the very un basic understanding of uh, the Eucharist makes it uh, something that needs to be represented. In and of itself, the cross is not efficacious unless the church represents it or represents it through the Eucharist. And so making the church necessary for the benefits of the cross to be received by the sinners. And therefore elevating the church to something, to a role that belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. And so blurring, again, going back to what you were saying, Reed, about the blurring between the uh, understanding of the incarnation. Since the church prolongs the incarnation of Christ, she can represent his sacrifice. But in doing so, she's claiming too much for, uh, to, for the church. And she's grabbing roles and prerogatives that belong to Christ and to Christ alone. Yeah, and what a great day to, to be talking about this. It's Reformation Day. Yeah. And so today we celebrate these, uh, these doctrines that uh, came out of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas, right? And, and the first one that we always like to discuss is sola scriptura, right? So scripture alone is our authority. And so in this conversation, Leo mentioned briefly uh, the whole letter to the Hebrews addresses the, this point, that Christ is better, that Christ was the ultimate high priest, that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. So if you're talking to your Roman Catholic friend and, and you want to be able to show them through God's word um, what we're describing here, that Christ's work is once and for all, that they can have assurance of salvation in the finished work of Christ, not their own work, and trying or having to take the Eucharist that is being administered through the mediation of a church, uh, you can go to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, towards the end of Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the author of, of this letter to the Hebrews said, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, 
as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We skip ahead to verse 28, it says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without the reference to sin to those who wait for him. If you go a little bit further, chapter 10, verse 3, it talks about the old sacrifices that reminded people of their sins year by year, that those were impossible to cleanse uh, the conscience and to take away the sins of the people for good. Uh, but it says, He, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a, foot, a footstool for his feet. So here we have uh, scripture telling us that the sacrifice that Christ made was one sacrifice. It was once for all. Like Leo said, his work is finished. And so the Eucharist blurs that, that time distinction where the faithful have to do something in order to continue to receive God's grace and God's forgiveness. Yes, that's true. And uh, it, it stems uh, from the understanding of the church uh, prolonging the incarnation of Christ and therefore sacrificing again uh, what was sacrificed once and for all on the cross and uh, making therefore salvation something that is not definitive, something that is still uh, in need to be reenacted, represented, reoffered. And, and whereas the Bible clearly teaches that uh, the sacrifice of Christ was the last sacrifice that was uh, needed for our salvation and it is complete it is sufficient, it is uh, totally capable of uh, bringing about what it uh, refers to, that is our salvation. It, it, Christ took our place in order for our sins to be forgiven. If we blur that, therefore we, our salvation is uncertain, our salvation is not dependent on Christ and on Christ alone, our salvation is not finished, but it needs to be uh, completed by someone else who administers the grace of God, namely the church, who prolonging the incarnation of Christ claims, takes the prerogatives of Christ and on behalf of Christ, in the place of Christ, acts as if she was Christ, she were Christ. And in so doing, she totally... Uh, blurs and confuses and distorts the gospel. The gospel is the message of the finished work of the cross preached to those who will believe. Whereas in the Catholic gospel, the gospel is something that God has done but is not complete unless the church takes uh, her role in representing it, re-sacrificing it so that she conveys the grace of God rather than Christ himself offering his grace through the Spirit. Which makes sense when we go back and look at Roman Catholicism and approach it as a theological system, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Because in the Eucharist specifically, we see the nature-grace interdependence uh, where the, the elements of the bread and the wine are necessary in order to uh, be infused with grace so that the faithful can take that in themselves. But we see also that second pillar, mm -hmm. the Christ-Church interconnection where the mediation of the church is necessary to administer that. Yeah. So... 
go back to episodes three and four if, if that sounds new to you, uh, and, and we explain what those two pillars are, the nature-grace interdependence, the Christ-Church interconnection, and that is crucial for understanding this Roman Catholic theological system, and, and this makes perfect sense in light of that. Yeah, there is a further point in the Eucharist, in the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, in that they believe that once the host is consecrated, once the priest uh, officiates or celebrates or uh, consecrates the, the bread, that piece of bread becomes the body of Christ. Uh, and so um, there we see the uh, overlapping of the Christ-Church interconnection and the blurring of time distinctions. The very a piece of bread becomes the body of Christ, which is then uh, worshipped, adored. Uh, they call it the Eucharistic adoration, the adoration of the Eucharist. And, uh, and there we fall into another uh, critical point of Catholicism, the elevation of a piece of nature, an element of nature, to a place, a role that doesn't belong to nature. We worship God, the triune God, and God alone, and not anything that belongs to the uh, created uh, world apart from the incarnation of Christ. And so we go, we go back in circles to the same points all over again. And as you, say, clear, as you rightly said, um, Clay, it's all about the Catholic system. So it doesn't make sense to approach Catholicism uh, just talking about individual doctrines, individual points of uh, difference. It is a, 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 to a whole. It is something that is interrelated. It is a system working as a whole rather than a bunch of pieces operating in a random, randomly. And going back to um, underscoring the importance of the Eucharist in Catholic Catholicism in the Catholic life, uh, Lumen Gentium 11 says that the Eucharist is the fount and apex of the whole Christian life. And that's because with the Eucharist, the, the Catholic faithful encounter and receive the benefits of the cross. Um, and the, the doctrine tied closely to the, to the cross is the doctrine of redemption, right? And so as we see, you know, as we've been explaining, um, that that's tidally closely tied to salvation, and so the, the church takes the prerogatives that Christ alone, alone has and, and claims that right, which they do, they do not have, that Christ alone has. And Leo, in your article, <clears throat> excuse me, in your article uh, you wrote, it must also be noted that the, the fluid nature of the time periods of redemption also have repercussions on the doctrine of justification, and you uh, alluded to this uh, a minute ago. Um, so justification is related to, to the Eucharist in what way? In the sense that it is not a judicial act once and for all received by faith alone, but it's an ongoing process depending on the administration of grace given by the church through the re-sacrificing or the representing of the sacrifice of Christ. And that change, it's, it's a game changer. It's, we're, we're using the same word as we often say on this podcast, but we're meaning different things. Uh, the word is the same, justification, but according to this under Catholic understanding, it is not something completed. Uh, 
once and for all received by grace alone. It is an ongoing process. And uh, an ongoing process is something that will never be assured of completing what is intended for. Unless the church, you know, does her own mediatorial work and unless the faithful is obedient in order to be worthy of receiving that grace. And it's a different religion. That's that's why it's so important to understand this system that we've been talking about because there's been plenty of opportunities between, for example, evangelicals and Catholics to say that we have now come to common ground um, on justification. Or we understand basically the same thing, the, the tenets that separated us at the Reformation are no longer really valid. But when you understand the system and what's at stake, it's... <laughs> It's very much still there, and justification is not an idea of a, it's not a juridical act that happens, and you are now uh, adopted. You're a son or daughter of of Christ declared or God. Righteous. You're not declared. It's an ongoing process, and that's what happens when you blur these these time distinctions, yeah. and it has very strong repercussions on the and significant repercussions on on the gospel, and that's why we have to discuss them and understand them, uh, and understand the system that is Roman Catholicism. But Leo, you say in your article, a third area of vital theological importance in which it is possible to clearly discern the Roman Catholic understanding of Hapax and Malon is that of Revelation. So um, how do we see this blurring of time also in Revelation? Well, we believe that uh, once the canon of Scripture was closed, the time of divine revelation was over, and we are not expecting new revelation um, until the second coming of Christ. We have to comply with the written uh, record of the biblical books. And uh, we, are, we have to ground our faith on the Bible and the Bible alone. Uh, once you blur the time uh, in terms of revelation, you uh, uh, attribute to the church the prerogative, the power to bring about new items of revelation, new ideas, new, new doctrines, new dogmas, something that is not in the Bible, something that it cannot be grounded on the basis of the Bible alone, but something that needs something else in order to be believed. And this is exactly what happened in Catholic history uh, with especially with the uh, the new modern uh, dogmas of the Catholic Church, the two Marian dogmas, the 1854 dogma of the immaculate conception of Mary, the idea that she was conceived immaculately without original sin, which is not a doctrine that can be found in the Bible. The Bible clearly teaches that there is no one who is righteous. There are, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No one, ex uh, there is no exception. The only sinless person is and was uh, Christ and Christ alone. And yet this is the, a dogma that is not in the Bible and yet it is part of the dogmatic outlook teaching of the Catholic Church. The other Marian dogma, the 1950 dogma of the bodily assumption of Mary into the heavenly glory is another binding belief for Catholics which is not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible we're told where what happened to Mary after she died. And there is no interest in that because that's 
totally insignificant when it comes to the gospel. We are told what happened to Christ, who came back to life the third day, he rose again. And this is crucial for our salvation. But as far as Mary is concerned, there is no interest. And indeed, uh, it is uh, totally insignificant. And yet, the Catholic Church has elevated because she claims the power to reveal new uh, revelations. revelations or doctrines, elevating this view, particular view, to the highest status in its dogmatic teaching. And uh, the other uh, dogma that has been uh, promulgated by the Catholic Church is the 1870 dogma of papal infallibility, the idea that where, uh, when the Pope speaks uh, ex cathedra from the chair, exercising his magisterial uh, teaching authority, what he says, what he speaks is infallible, given uh, the infallible um, quality of the Word of God. And this is, again, something that stems out of a, the blurring of time distinctions because the only infallible teaching that we have is that which is written and recorded in Scripture. Every human formulation, every human teaching is subject to fallibility and to mistake and to error. And there is no, apart from Scripture, there is nothing that can claim the infallibility of God. And something I find interesting that I did not discover until after moving to Italy, uh, you mentioned uh, the dogma of papal infallibility. What most people don't understand is uh, the historical context that that dogma took place in. Um, the Roman Catholic Church was not only fighting against the movements within modernity, but specifically here in Italy, it was a historic time where the country was being united and, uh, and the papal uh, kingdom still had authority of a lot of the, the nation, and specifically Rome. And it was in 1870 that uh, Rome was captured by the Italian uh, troops. They unified Italy and claimed Rome as the capital of the nation. And so in that moment, the Pope's authority as a state figure was also being threatened. And so it, it makes so much sense understanding the historical context yeah. uh, that he would claim this position of infallibility in a, in a political crisis. Again, I want to show the you know, intersections, <clears throat> intersections between the, the different time distinctions that we have been talking about. The vicar of Christ claiming to be the representative, the bodily representative of Christ. So blurring the time distinction between the incarnation of Christ and the uh, life of the church. Speaking authoritatively with the authority of Christ and therefore claiming infallibility. These are you know, interrelated. It is based on the fact that as the church prolongs the incarnation of Christ, she speaks with the authority of Christ and with the infallibility of Christ. And so it's all interconnected. It's, it's not just you know, a, a single dogma that you can get rid of easily. It is part of a system that makes sense if taken as a whole. But once you see the, the cracks and the problems and the uh, um, deviations of the system, all areas of Catholic teaching are affected by the, the mistakes 
inside of the system that are part of the heart, the DNA of the system. And it is very clear in that, in that respect. Where, where in scripture do we see this idea that revelation is hapax, that is it, is, it is done and it is completed and we shouldn't expect any further revelation until Christ returns? Where do we see that well, most we, clearly in scripture? We see an insistence on the written records, written books, uh, written revelations uh, given to the apostles and... Uh, um, validated by the Holy Spirit and uh, uh, subsequently recognized uh, by the church. Uh, not, not, not the church deciding on revelation, but receiving uh, God's revelation. And uh, the Spirit accompanying uh, the uh, preaching of the gospel by illuminating, by enlightening the minds and hearts of the people, but not giving new revelations uh, apart from or added to uh, the Bible. It is what, um, it is what Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given and is inspired. And so it, 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 it talks about the, the books of the, the Old Testament as well as the apostolic books uh, written as a result of uh, the revelation received by and through the apostles. And uh, uh, apart from that, we are not meant to look for new revelation and God will not reveal new revelation until uh, Jesus Christ will come back the second time. You, you, you also reference in your article um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 to communicate this idea that it's a half pack once and for all. Uh, the saints received it once for all, Jude 3, I believe, yeah. as well. Uh, there, there is one aspect worth noting. Uh, whereas the revelation, God's revealed word to us, is hapax, it is completed, it is done, and we shouldn't expect any more divine revelation from God. There is an aspect of Scripture that is malon, that is, that continues on, and that would be the interpretation yeah. of Scripture, which is... Uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, is, mm -hmm. what, is, what does that look like exactly? Yeah, yeah, it, lo uh, it goes back to John 14, 16, uh, the, um, the role of the Spirit being the one who will speak and will help uh, the people of God to be faithful to the words of Christ, not supplementing them, not adding new words, but actually helping to understand them and to... Uh, apply them to live them out in daily life. That is the role of the Spirit. But again, it's a Trinitarian work. It is the work, the word of the fathers uh, given to us by the Son and interpreted by the Spirit. The church receives this word, but is not the uh, active producer of new words, new uh, revelations or new doctrines. Uh, it, it receives it. It's a passive uh, role that uh, she she's meant to 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 do. Yeah, Hebrews four verse twelve says, "For the word of God is living and active." So it's it's not that let's see. Yet we have received God's revelation through the Scriptures, but God continues to move through that revelation. Uh, but with the Roman Catholic Church, we see they they proclaim the authority to uh, provide continued revelation. And our question would, would be to our Roman Catholic friends, what do you do when continued revelation stands 
completely contrary to scripture or scripture is completely absent or void of a specific dogma, which a dogma is something that has to be believed by the Roman Catholic faithful. And so if you're a Roman Catholic and you're listening to this and you say, well, I agree with you, I don't necessarily agree with that dogma or that specific doctrine, um, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that if you are a Roman Catholic faithful, you are required to believe that. Because if you reject one aspect of their faith and you reject it as a whole. Uh, Before we conclude here, it goes back last episode and another episode, we've talked about how a lot of this uh, time blurring and this theology obscures the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. And here we see that again, because if the revelation, God's revelation is is once and for all, it's, it's done. And the Holy Spirit guides us in interpreting and applying His Word to our context and, and to you know, the context in which we find ourselves. In Roman Catholicism, it's the church who takes that place, claims those prerogatives. So not only does it continue to reveal, um, revela- to reveal new doctrine, but it doesn't leave room for the Holy Spirit. It also, it also uh, interprets that Word. Yeah. And historically, the church has only been able to interpret that word, uh, uh, the God's word. So that further and greatly obscures the role of the Holy Spirit in it. But it, it makes sense whenever the church is acting and taking those prerogatives for itself, which God alone and Christ alone and the Holy Spirit, the Trin- Trinitarian God alone, can can claim. Um, so that's that's why these issues need to be discussed and, and understood in the, in the theolo- theological system understood. But... Um, Again, it's Reformation Day, and Leo concluded his article saying that the Protestant Reformation identified the core of the problem with Roman Catholicism in its mingling of what ought to remain distinct. Christ alone and Scripture alone are none other than an urgent call to rigorously respect the hapax, that is the once and for all, of the gospel in order to benefit it, benefit from it more and more. Amen. Um, but are there a couple questions we could equip our listeners with to, to help them and dialogue and conversations with their Catholic friends and family members um, taking these concepts we discussed, not only last week, but uh, this week as well. Well, uh, in terms of uh, Revelation, asking what is the ground for these new dogmas uh, to be promulgated to infallible truths, given the fact that they are not in the Bible? Uh, what are we talking about when we talk about Christian dogma if it's not biblical doctrine? If it's extra-biblical doctrine, we're not talking about biblical teaching. We're talking about uh, the, the teaching of an institution that claims to be the prolongation of the incarnation, but actually it, it distorts it. And so asking why and how is it possible for a church to come to the conclusion that she needs to uh, formulate new dogmas, given the fact that the Bible doesn't mention uh, any of them. And not only does it not mention them, but stands contrary to the words of Scripture, uh, some of those that we've actually discussed on this episode. Uh, and then I, I, would, I would talk to your friends about our assurance of their salvation. We talked about that last time when it comes to their participating in the Eucharist. They have to go to Mass to encounter Christ. They have to partake in uh, receiving the elements of the Eucharist in order to receive God's grace and to experience the sacrificial work of Christ being re-sacrificed through the mediation of, of a church 
that has created in this sacramental economy um, a dependency uh, on itself in order for someone to uh, pursue Christ. So I, I think speaking to, to the heart in that situation is incredibly beneficial, and we have to do so with gentleness because uh, I've, I've been accused here in Rome of, of maybe coming across as arrogant by saying that I am assured of my salvation. So helping them to understand that when someone says something like that, it usually comes from an understanding of their sinfulness and their guilt. They feel the weight of their sin, and so how could you possibly say that? And that's where we have to redefine grace and go back to, as we celebrate today, uh, the, the great understanding that we are justified by faith alone in the works of Christ alone. I think, I think that one thing that strikes me as I, as I think through this and read it is just how the church has claimed for itself what Christ alone has the right to claim. Yeah. And where do they, how is that justified? And that has so many uh, repercussions, not only with redemption, salvation, justification, but, um, you know, and just asking questions about that and, and understanding that better. But uh, I think we're about out of time. We may yeah. have gone over for time already. But Clay, tell us real quick how we our listeners can contact us or follow us. Well, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Reformanda Initiative. If you're on Twitter, follow us at Reformanda Rome. You can visit our website at www.reformandainitiative.org. There you'll find uh, a link to resources. You'll find a link to our podcasts. Uh, you'll find information on upcoming conferences, and you'll also find a contact form. So if you have any questions, please send them to us. We'd be more than happy to respond to them.